Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Tim Wyatt, Madeline Davies and Adam Beckett. You can subscribe to the Church Times and get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. On this week's podcast, we talk about new signs of life in the rural church. And 50 years after his assassination, we hear about how Martin Luther King was remembered this week and about the social activism that he has inspired. First, talk of the rural church often turns to shrinking congregations in crumbling buildings. But as Tim Wyatt found out in an in-depth investigation in last week's paper, there are new signs of life. Tim, can you tell us a bit about how this feature came about? It's, it's a mammoth piece of work. You've spoken to a lot of people. I actually did most of the work for it kind of autumn time last year. So I spent, must have been nearly a month in total, talking to as many people as I could find across the Church of England and outside. These were clergy who worked in rural dioceses, diocesan staff, uh, people who worked in fresh expressions, church wardens, lay, lay ministers, people who ran charities and think tanks, and just trying to get an in-depth flavour of what people who are actually working at the rural church, at the grassroots, if you forgive the pun, will uh, actually made of the future of the rural church. Because we, we hear so often this mantra of, you know, it's dying out, it's a basket case. And I wanted to sort of dig below some of the superficial headlines and see what, what do the experts really make of it. So what, what are some of the signs of hope that you found? Well, it's interesting. When you look at uh, the one of the most recent kind of in-depth reports the church has done on this, which is called Release for Mission, Growing the Rural Church, back in 2015, they actually found that contrary to people's kind of assumptions, the proportions of churches that were growing was the same in both urban areas and rural areas. It was about one in five, 18% of churches in each part of the world were growing. And in fact, a smaller proportion of rural churches were shrinking in size compared to urban churches. So it's perhaps a little bit more complex than people would say about how all the growth is occurring in the cities and all we see in the countryside is decline and, and um, the dying out of congregations. But then, however, the other thing is to look at some of the stats is, is quite startling is how uh, 17% of people in England live in the countryside, but two-thirds, 8,394 of the Church of England's parishes are in the countryside. Mm. So there's clearly a huge historic imbalance in the countryside in term, and that's for many complicated historical reasons going back all the way to the medieval era. But basically, by simple facts of, of kind of demographics, churches in the countryside are, are struggling because there's much more of them and they are serving a smaller population. So that's, that's the kind of bedrock of the problem that all these people I talked to are trying to grapple with. Is it fair to say that a common theme that arose among people you spoke to was that sort of business as usual won't work for the future? There needs to be some kind of change, but perhaps they have different ideas of what needs to change in the countryside. Yeah, I think that's fair. There wasn't any kind of one single model that everyone jumped in and said, this is the, the future of the Church of England. And in fact, a lot of them were quite kind of sceptical of people who did propose a silver bullet. But yes, I think it's fair to say that no one was sitting back and saying that there was no problem or that things would sort themselves out. Everyone said there needed to be change, there needed to be a reimagining of ministry in the countryside through various different means. And actually, they were all surprisingly positive, more optimistic than I expected, actually, that this was already underway and that what had to change would change in time. Well, what are some of the models? Is festival churches gets mentioned, that's one of them? Yes, festival churches is one of the ideas. That's when uh, churches are, rather than being formally rendered redundant and sold off as housing, they remain consecrated spaces, but they no longer have an obligation to have regular Sunday worship. So they might open for festivals such as Christmas and Easter and kind of other one-off events, but otherwise they're kind of shuttered, as it were, and just kind of mothballed until required. That was fairly unpopular, actually, among the people I spoke to. There were a few people who said that that is inappropriate in some circumstances, but any kind of 
widespread mass program of closing thousands of churches in this fashion or mothballing them was quite strongly resisted. Seems a bit defeatist, maybe. It's partly that. There's partly the message it sends to the community that, that the church has given up on the countryside and is kind of retrenching, is the word people use, and kind of retreating to the urban areas where they can keep it going. But there's also the idea that actually, statistically, it doesn't really work. So some studies have suggested that if you close one village's church, the remaining congregants don't just hop in the car and drive to the next village. They just stop worshipping altogether. Because people in the countryside, more so than in urban areas, often have a very strong attachment to the particular building they've worshipped and potentially their family worshipped in. They may have got baptised, married, they've buried their relatives. So most people said actually, as well as being a kind of quite a defeatist approach, it's actually not likely to help. It's quite difficult, it's quite a bureaucratic and expensive process to go through, and it often evokes quite strong opposition from people in rural communities who might not attend on a Sunday, but feel very, very deeply that the church should not be mothballing their, their local parish. So you quote the Reverend Sally Gray saying it's very difficult for small churches to die in the countryside. Exactly. Someone will always come along and keep it going. Exactly. And I think that's true of, I think, most archdeacons, anyone who's attempted to go through the process of formally declaring a church redundant or even just mothballing it would agree with that. It is remarkably difficult. It's deliberately difficult in the bureaucracy, so it can't be done on a whim. But it's also people are very attached to them. Just a few days ago, I read a piece in The Guardian by Simon Jenkins, who's mm. an avowed atheist, but a lover of churches, yes. whose solution is he looks and he says he's sad to see the churches in decline. And the solution is not to shutter them, but to nationalise them and have the state take them back. Mm. You know, there is a, there's a deep affection and attachment from people to their church, which makes them very, very anti any suggestion that they should be mothballed, even if, you know, that might in some cases actually be the only realistic and financially prudent option. What are some of the other models that people discussed? One of the really interesting ones I looked into in quite some detail was this idea of resource churches. So we hear quite a lot about urban city centre resource churches, which is part of the kind of HDB church planting strategy. But there's also this idea, sometimes called a minster model, which is where you have one kind of central hub church, potentially in a market town, and then around it a satellite of 5, 10, 15 smaller village churches. And rather than having them all struggling along by themselves, you group them into a team ministry and the central thriving church shares its resources, its dynamism, its personnel, its wealth with the smaller churches. So one of the models that's quite interesting um, was in Stamford uh, in Lincolnshire, and that was where they had a really thriving church where a lot of people were coming into this church, which had, you know, five or six hundred strong congregation from the villages. And so the rector has said, actually, why don't we, he has got some of them to start midweek kind of discipleship groups in their homes. And the idea is eventually to build up faith in the villages so that they can, he used the language of sowing, to sow these people back into their local church rather than commuting in. He says there's quite a natural organic relationship between market towns, for example, where people come in to visit their GP, do their shopping, drop the kids off at secondary school, but they actually live in the villages. And why not try and recreate that kind of organic network, which is quite an ancient model, as other people pointed out. The Minster model goes back again all the way to the medieval era. I noticed there's also quite a lot in the feature about using some of these buildings in the community. So using them for cafes or for drop-in centres, basically opening them up to the community. That's something that we've looked at in quite a lot of detail after the Taylor Review, which was published in December. That was a government commission review which really wants to see communities starting to pay for the upkeep of churches. So suggesting that churches can no longer rely so much on public sources of funding and they're going to have to work with their communities to do repairs and to 
make themselves sustainable. I have had some really interesting feedback from people who actually serve in the countryside, really kind of questioning some of the wisdom of those recommendations. So although, yes, in some instances, you can make your um, church building a sort of vibrant community hub, as described in the Taylor Review, there are other places where actually the village already has that kind of facility and it's actually easier to use the parish hall rather than trying to make quite an old building suitable for your meetings. You know, if they lack facilities, a kitchen, a toilet, etc., why would you turn to your church when you've already got a really good community facility? So mm-hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see the pilot of the tele-review recommendations, which was also announced this week, and see how that pans out. One of the areas that's being piloted is a very rural um, area, Suffolk. The response there has been quite positive to getting a chance to pilot this new approach of community involvement and access to some funding. So just be interesting to follow that pilot and, and see how it pans out. Because the flip side of what we are talking about before, about how local people in the countryside are often very attached to their church and resistant to see it closed down, that can be a negative if you're trying to close down a church. But if you're trying to build up a church, that's a hugely positive thing because you already have these connections and access to people. I did a lot about the idea of fresh expressions. And so, you know, if people aren't coming to the church rather than either shutting the church or, you know, throwing up their hands in, in despair, why not leave the church and go to the people? You know, so people setting up fresh expressions of church in community centres or um, in the countryside and doing harvest services or indeed, you know, bringing the post office into the local church and setting up as a dementia cafe and, and all these kind of ideas of saying, actually, rather than simply just doing our Sunday services and waiting for the local people to, to come back to church, why don't we actually run services and opportunities and initiatives that interest the local people and serve their needs rather than just doing what we as Christians want to do in the church? I think also some of the discourse around the Church of England abandoning poor areas, sometimes I think rural poverty can get overlooked and I know that when we've written about the need for vocations to serve in deprived areas, we do often get feedback from people wanting to emphasise that it's not solely an urban problem and that to some extent rural poverty can be a bit hidden. Um, So I think that's really important to remember. And I noticed that Bishop Helen Hartley was saying, you know, we need to make sure that this isn't an internal conversation. We need to think about what the needs in the countryside are, Mm. um, whether it's kind of infrastructure or lack of transport, lack of investment, and make sure that the church is serving those needs and that we don't just have this conversation about survival amongst ourselves. Your piece suggests that the amalgamation of parishes can lead to some clergy perhaps being too thinly spread. That's right, yeah. So one of the people I interviewed in um, a parish in Chelmsford, a lay member, talked about how they saw their team rector, she estimated approximately once a year, and even their team vicar was, was too stretched to take on much more than Sunday services. So she said, you know, she agreed that fresh expressions and getting out of community was a good thing to do, but she just questioned where are the resources to do it. It's worth flagging up, actually, that we've had a letter from the, the parish. This is the North Hinkford Benefice in, in North Essex, who, who points out that actually it's not fair to say that they're never present. And they list a, a long number of things that they've organised, Lenten pilgrimages, organising training, public intercessions. Every congregation should see the rector monthly, at least, they say. So it's just worth pointing out. There's a dispute over, over how that works, but they do point out that they're not a resource model, a minster model, it's it's just 15 small village parishes that have been grouped together into a single benefice, which, you know, some of the people who do work in the minster model where you have a hub church and parishes around it say that that's really no, no substitute for the real deal as they would see it. Wednesday was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Dr Martin Luther King Jr. There was a service held at Westminster Abbey, which Adam Beckett attended. Adam, tell us about the service. 
It was led by the Dean of Westminster, as you'd expect, but there was a real diversity of speakers and people taking part. The music wasn't led by the Abbey's choir, it was led by various gospel choirs that came together under the name the Martin Luther King Celebration Choir, which was really fantastic and really emotional. They sang We Will Overcome amongst all kinds of other hymns. The Bishop of Woolwich, Dr. Caraway Dorgu, made a really emotive address in which he really deplored the rise in knife and gun violence in the country at the moment, particularly in London. I'm sure you've seen the news that mm. more than 50 people have been killed in London so far this year. And he was asking the question, how many more young people will it take? And both Dr. Dorgu and other people throughout the service kept recalling Martin Luther King's message that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And relating this back to the spate of knife violence, he said it's not just affecting a particular community. It's not just, it isn't just a London thing, but specifically in this context, he was saying it isn't just a problem for some people, it's a problem for everyone. And the sooner that people realise that, the sooner that injustice can be stopped. What was Christian Aid's involvement with Martin Luther King? Because they helped organise the service, didn't they? Yes, so I didn't know this either, but Martin Luther King was a big fan of Christian Aid back in the 1950s and 60s, visited their offices quite a few times. When he won his Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, he stopped over in London and visited the Christian Aid offices on the way there. The first director of Christian Aid was a supporter of Martin Luther King as well. Uh, Janet Lacey, I think. She visited Memphis shortly after he was assassinated in uh, 1968 to just see the changes he had made, but also the ghastly scenes mm. after his assassination. And the new chief executive of Christian Aid, Amanda Cozy McQuashie, was there in her first public appearance. It's only her second day of the job. Very impressive uh, speech from her. It was a celebration of Martin Luther King's life, but also a moment to really question equality in the world, and particularly this country at the moment, and just ask how far have we actually got and obviously Christian Aid does a lot of work, but mostly around the world, but also in this country, to, to see that happen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.